Welcome to Acton Line, a product of the Acton Institute for the Study of Religion and Liberty. I'm Gabriel Jaja, producer. In this episode, Acton Institute's research associate and librarian, Dan Huger, sits down with participants of Acton's Emerging Leader Program, Grace Hemmeke, Ben Luker, and Jeremy Ward, to discuss their capstone project on the rights and responsibilities of government action in times of crisis. The three emerging leaders discussed the ordered role of the United States government during times of crisis through the Acton Institute's framework of a free and virtuous society, characterized by individual liberty and sustained by religious principles. Their research was prompted by the government's role in the COVID-19 crisis and is extended to practical judgment in both historical and current analysis of catastrophic periods. You can find additional resources in the show notes of this episode, as well as find previous episodes of Acton Line on our website at acton.org slash actonline. If you like this program, you can help us reach even more listeners by sharing it with a friend and leaving us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. We welcome your comments as well. Acton Line is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you listen. Welcome. My name is Dan Huger, Librarian and Research Associate at the Acton Institute. Today I'm joined by Grace Hemmeke, Ben Luker, and Jeremy Ward, who are all part of the Acton Institute's Emerging Leaders Cohort of 2021. For their capstone project as part of the program, Grace, Ben, and Jeremy have developed a sort of philosophical framework for exploring the government's rights and responsibilities in times of crisis. In addition, they explore historical crises in American history, from the Civil War to the COVID-19 pandemic, through a series of op-eds. They've also graciously invited me to discuss their research with them on this very podcast. Grace, Ben, Jeremy, welcome to Act in Line, and thank you all for being with us. Thank you so much, Dan. It's an honor to be here. So, earlier this year, Dylan Palman and I had a conversation about a book by Charles Malik on Christ and Crisis, and we kind of tried to take his framework and talk through the COVID-19 pandemic using that. And in the foreword to that book, Malik defines crisis as sort of a judgment, both in individual lives and in the world at large, and poses to the reader a series of questions. He asks, are you perplexed? Do you feel the crisis? Do you feel something profoundly wrong? both in your life and the affairs of the world? Do you, as it were, hold your heart in your hand, fearing that almost the next moment something terrible is going to break out, both in you and in the world? This is a very broad theological and sort of visceral approach to the question. Your research focuses on a more narrow sense of the term. Grace, how do you define crisis? We've more specifically defined it as a large-scale situation requiring intervention in order to preserve liberty and the common good. Okay. So this is like a natural disaster, something like um, a large-scale civic disturbance, like a riot, or um, something like a pandemic or a disease outbreak. Um, Would this be... Domestic crises only, or would this also include things like war on the on the international front? It includes both. Okay. So both the domestic and international, that sort of common, you know, sense of crises you hear on the news, although, you know, 
there's also a crisis for everything. There's a sort of abuse of that language that we're all familiar with. But those sort of intuitive understanding that people have of crisis. Excellent. Now, in your research, you begin by referencing two thinkers from very different disciplines. Uh, the first is the philosopher John Locke, and then there's the economist Robert Higgs. How do these two thinkers shape your approach to crises? Ben, I guess we'll start with Locke. Sure, Dan. Yeah, I'd love to talk a little bit about Locke. Um, we chose Locke uh, because one of his foundational works, uh, the Second Treatise of Government, uh, was particularly important in the Founders' Framework um, for developing the Declaration of Independence and later on, later on the Constitution. So in the Second Treatise of Government, uh, the primary goal of that writing is to discern the origin of political power. And to do so, he begins with a depiction of the state of nature, um, which is the condition of man in the absence of society. Now, defining the state of nature is common to the works of many notable political philosophers, uh, from Locke to Hobbes to Rousseau. Um, Locke takes a more optimistic um, approach to the state uh, than, than maybe Hobbes would, um, and I identify some characteristics about it. First characteristic he identifies, it's a state of perfect freedom um, in which individuals can order their actions how they choose, uh, and it's also a state of perfect equality uh, where everyone has this power to order their actions. Uh, no one's actions are governed by another's. However, it is governed by the law of nature, uh, and anyone that is familiar with the Acton Institute uh, will remember that um, natural law theory uh, is foundational um, to their work and mission. And it's the principle that all people have inherent rights um, conferred not by legislation, but by God, nature, and reason. Um, and Locke takes this definition. Um, he defines natural law uh, as the fact that no man or woman has a right to harm or strip away another's life, liberty, health, or possessions. Uh, now back to the state of nature. Uh, in this state, individuals have two powers, uh, and the first one is to act as they wish and dispose of the person's possessions as they see fit, so long as these actions are within the realm of the law of nature. And number two, uh, the power to punish crimes that transgress that law. And it's important to recognize that these powers are only active um, when individuals are in the state of nature. When they join together in society, they cede these powers fully the second, which is to punish people, um, and partially the first, which is to order their actions, um, to a larger governing body. And they do this because when they're in the state of nature, they're vulnerable to attack from others. So this forms the foundation for a governing body um, that has power over an individual. Now, Locke, Locke is somewhat, somewhat aware of this crisis question as well. Where does, does, does Locke make allowances for a departure from that sort of standard model? He does. Uh, he addresses a government prerogative, um, which is where um, a government has a power to make laws in times of crises in ways that they may not normally do so. Because legislation takes time um, and crises don't always allow for time. Excellent. So one of the, one of the interesting things um, – and your remarks about Locke that I draw out is one of the reasons you turn to Locke is because he's a very central figure in this natural rights tradition, which goes back to an earlier natural law tradition, which has a history in Christian thought and also in ancient, ancient thought as well. Now, 
Locke's social contract is also particularly biblical. He uses a lot of sort of Genesis imagery when he argues his state of nature is different from a lot of other social contract theorists that begin with a likewise sort of state. And he's also uniquely nationally relevant in the way that he influenced the founders. So that's I think that's an excellent reason to turn to Locke for, for this sort of examination. Now, Jeremy, why? where does Higgs come into this? Because Higgs is a very different place. He's not a philosopher. Um, he's an economist. We like that synthesis. But, but why Higgs in particular? Absolutely. Well, Robert Higgs's theory of the ratchet effect in government was actually central to our capstone project. And Higgs is a very interesting guy. He's been a scholar for a number of years. He's in his 70s now. Uh, but he would describe himself as a libertarian anarchist, actually. And, and although the Acton Institute is definitely not an, uh, does not hold anarchist principles, uh, we do hold many aspects of libertarian principles here. Uh, and Higgs was specifically interested in the role of the government, specifically the role of the government during such crises. So uh, he's most famous for coining the term the ratchet effect um, and specifically using it for crises. So the ratchet effect, to put it simply, refers to the growth of the size and power of the government. This could be the state government. It's most usually referred to the federal government, though. Um, So at times of crisis, the government tends to accumulate power. And this is not a new idea to Higgs. In fact, James Madison uh, wrote in a letter to Thomas Jefferson in 1794. uh, He said, quote, You understand the game behind the curtain too well, talking about politics, not to perceive the old trick of turning every contingency into a resource for accumulating force in the government. So this has been an age-old problem in politics of that the government, uh, anybody likes to accumulate more power, and a crisis presents the perfect opportunity for this. Uh, so Higgs's ratchet effect, which he showed quantitatively throughout American history, was that at the moment of crisis, that seminal point, the government steps into the void, says we will be the ones to solve this problem, uh, because we alone have the resources and the power to do so. And most notably, this is not just always the government that steps in. It's the people, and oftentimes, that demand that the government do something. Uh, so it's just as much a fault of the American populace or the populace of any country as it is of our leaders. We want someone to step in and save the day. They're, they're satisfying that sort of natural demand um, for a response in times of crisis. Now, One of the most interesting parts of your capstone project is, you know, this is all very theoretical and it's interesting, but you also have a very practical component to this where you try to give four criteria by which the legitimacy of the government use of power in times of crisis might be judged. Before we get into the specifics of like each each of those criteria, let's talk just about how you arrived at them Uh, because part of your research project is philosophical while another is historical. Uh, How do you see the relationship between theory and history here in the formulation of these and how did both the philosophical and the historical parts of your analysis inform these criteria as you develop them? Ben? Yeah, sure. Then, um, it, it really came from looking at a modern problem. Um, we were analyzing COVID uh, and the government's response to COVID. And we wanted to consider whether a response could be deemed legitimate or illegitimate. You know, where did the government overstep its bounds? Where was the government um, doing what people were calling it to do, what, what it was called to do in preservation of the common good? And this led us to develop a criteria test 
uh, in which we could analyze crises, uh, past and future. Absolutely. And uh, we have dubbed this this test with a fancy acronym. We've called it the PERC test. And for all of you farmers or geologists or landowners out there, this will sound uh, very familiar to you. Uh, in the real world, a PERC test is short for a percolation test, which measures the drainage of the land, of soil. Um, but we have used it for, for this analysis of the crisis response of governments. So PERC, P-E-R-C, this is the Proper Emergency Response Criteria Test, the PERC test. Uh, and in this, we have a set of four criteria that we think is the proper measure of the government's response during a crisis. It, it can be applied to any sphere of power, uh, but in most of the crises we're looking at from a historical perspective, we're looking at it from the federal government. So the agricultural metaphor, I think, is really apt because what you're, what you're looking is, you know, there's this reservoir of power that the state accumulates um, in a time of crisis, in part because of popular calls for its involvement, in part because of sort of public choice, self-seeking sort of things. And then you want that drainage. You want that, you know, to return to a sense of normalcy. Um, and this, this gives you a criteria by which you can measure if that's actually happened. You can measure that power drainage um, and see, uh, see just uh, how operative it is. Now, the very first criteria that you have uh, is that subsidiary agencies are insufficient to meet the challenge. Um, subsidiarity is, a, is a, something that comes out of Catholic social teaching, uh, something that we talk about all the time. And uh, why, why, Grace, do you think that, th- that this, is, this is particularly important? Subsidiarity is important because when the government oversteps it and starts making unilateral decrees, they're taking away some of the freedom of the human person to make their own choices. Locke defines paternalistic power as power that parents use over their children until they come to the age of reason. And when the government oversteps subsidiary agencies, the government turns itself into a parent of citizens except that the citizens will never mature to the age of reason. So subsidiarity is very important so that the citizens have a chance to solve their own problems without having their liberty taken away from them by the government. So this reminds me of something that Lord Acton said. He said, uh, now liberty and good government do not exclude each other, and there are many excellent reasons why they should go together. Liberty is not the means to a higher political end. It is itself the highest political end. It is not for the sake of good public administration that it's required, but for the security and the pursuit of the highest objects of civil society and private life. So when you talk about subsidiarity, part of this involves different levels of government response. Part of this also involves different levels of response sort of all the way down in a sort of Russian nesting dolls sort of way. I mean, we all have personal responsibilities in a time of crisis. We have people that we are responsible for, people that we care for, duties that we have to fulfill. Likewise, our larger family networks, our neighborhoods, our communities. Is one of these concerns that that this government response crowds out those other opportunities for people? And how do you recommend communities sort of cope with that? and, and, and re- remain vital, even, even in cases of government overreach. So one of the ways that the government 
most recently overstepped subsidiarity was in their reaction to coronavirus crisis. In a lot of areas, coronavirus was not as major a threat as it might have been in larger cities. But what we saw was unilateral decrees that mandated the same protective measures in rural communities as they did in cities like New York. So I think that when the government oversteps local agencies, nobody has a chance to understand how they should respond to a crisis. So the government is basically preventing local agencies from being able to develop contingency plans in that case, where you would have some small communities that might decide COVID's not a huge threat to us, whereas the larger cities might want to have locked down for longer periods of time. But when the government mandates lockdowns across the country, no small community will be able to decide that and be able to exercise critical thinking for themselves. One of the things I remember from the very beginning of this of this latest crisis, uh, there was a, a lab in Washington that developed, in Washington State, that developed a, a COVID test early on. And they, they did not wait for government permission to do so. And these sorts of initiatives are often frustrated by those general mandates. So I could, I could totally see where you're coming from there. We've got another criteria here, um, the sort of second criteria, is that the action is necessary for the protection of, pub, of, of, of the common good and for the preservation of liberty. Now, necessity can be a difficult thing to establish. Um, you know, we talked a little bit earlier, you know, there's a sense in which um, – Everything seems to be a crisis these days. We have a climate crisis. We have all sorts of uh, crises. Um, how do we cut through that rhetoric and how do we determine that there's a, there's a crisis, that there's an actual necessity there? And, and to this, I'll turn to Jeremy. Well, absolutely, Dan. That's a fantastic question. And that is the age-old problem of politics is that uh, political office, no matter how strict the limits upon it, requires some level of judgment and discretion by the policymakers. Uh, but we felt that this framework, um, the second one, was important uh, to bring in because it's not only liberty that is the goal of, of government and of politics. It is the common good, no matter how out of use that phrase may be, especially on the right. But it does have a lot of conservative history to it. Uh, Locke, obviously, was very keen on liberty and the upholding of liberty. He also stated that the end of the government is the good of the community. So there is a historical and philosophical backing for the idea uh, that it's the common good that needs to be maintained. And who will it be maintained by? Well, the individual agents themselves working up the chain of command. This brings in our subsidiarity principle. Uh, but there, there is a level of authority that the federal government does have uh, to protect the common good. And actually, Thomas Jefferson mentioned this, too, in his second inaugural address. Uh, he said that the role of public efforts is to be directed honestly for the public good in order to, make, to cultivate peace uh, and that civil and religious liberty may be unassailed, law and order preserved, equality of rights maintained. Um, so in, in the American government, there is very much this strain of thought saying that the common good must be protected. 
And yes, you're absolutely right. This does hinge on the decision-making of individual lawmakers often, but it is interwoven into our founding documents. Yeah. And the common good and liberty are sort of inexorably linked. Um, I mentioned that Lord Acton quote earlier about liberty and good governments not being at odds. Mm -hmm. Um, Charles Malick in his book, Christ and Crisis, talks about how in crises, everybody has a role to play, government, business, labor, the press, the university, the churches, every agency and every person must respond, each in his own way and within the limits of his competence. So this brings us back to the subsidiarity is a part of this. And I think this is one of the the nice things about this framework is how integrated it is. Now, to move along, we have this, this integration between the common good, subsidiarity, human freedom. The next, the next criteria is, is constitutionality, which is very different. Ben, why bring the Constitution into this question? Well, yeah, so it seemed obvious to us at the time, right? We were trying to develop a test to analyze uh, events in American history uh, and hopefully in America's future that, that uh, can be deemed illegitimate or legitimate by this test. Uh, but as we kind of dug into it a little bit more, we realized this, like the second uh, criteria, also requires some prudence um, because the Constitution can be interpreted in many different ways, uh, depending on who's reading it. For example, uh, when we're looking at, in one of our crises, the Civil War, many people still analyze um, Lincoln's actions as unconstitutional. uh, And there's basis for that. Um, But there's also basis for reading uh, that his actions taken during the Civil War, such as suspension of the writ of habeas corpus, um, were legitimate. Absolutely. So one of the things we have to keep in mind, and this is maybe how we can link it all together, is that the rule of law itself is very important to legitimacy. Um, And in that you primarily investigated issues of crisis in federal government response, that constitution as the highest law of the land is something that's good to keep in the forefront to – Make sure that the rule of law in terms of, you know, equality before the law, in terms of, you know, a non-arbitrary nature of the response is also very important. No, that's, that's very helpful. Now, the last question, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to sort of go to everybody in turn because I think, I think this, this might be the most difficult criteria, particularly in the present crisis we're in with uh, with COVID-19, and that is that any suspension of liberty must be reinstated when the crisis is over. And there are good reasons for that related to rule of law that we talked about. There are good reasons uh, in terms of that common necessity of both the common good and liberty, which is an essential component of the common good. There are good reasons for subsidiarity, why these things should be temporary. The trick is deciding when they're over. Hurricanes are are easier. You know, the hurricane comes in, you can see the storm dissipate on the Doppler radar. You can see water levels return to normal. You can see floods subside. When you're dealing with with a worldwide pandemic, with a respiratory illness that might be with us in some form for a very long time, how do we judge those difficult cases, Jeremy? Yeah, well, that's the critical question here. 
Um, but I actually think that the metaphor, the imagery you just brought in of the hurricane is, is maybe an interesting one because as the floodwaters of the crisis recede, uh, then there is and should be a shifting of the power. You know, when the flood is at its height, that might be a crisis too large for the state to handle, certainly too large for individuals or cities. Um, so it, it might be a time for the highest level of power than the federal government to step in. And in some countries, we see that when these natural disasters hit, it's not even just the country itself. It's other countries and the United Nations even that come in to provide support. Uh, but as the floodwaters um, slip a little bit, and this could be for any crisis, uh, then the other subsidiary agencies need to step in and take the proper roles. Uh, a year after the hurricane, it shouldn't be the U- United States or the Army that's down there doing the repair or the construction. At that point, it needs to be the city that's handling it. Uh, three years after, when there's still limbs in people's yards, it's up to the individuals themselves, perhaps still helped by nonprofits or agencies. But at some point, the individuals at every level have to regain their agency. So that part of it is very critical. So a year from now, we should look for a COVID response that's much more directed by, let's say, county health departments than by daily updates from the White House. Correct. And the reason for that is that the county health departments do have a critical role to play uh, and they have to maintain their power or else all power gradually trickles towards the top. And this was the main point of Higgs's ratchet effect. Uh, was that in times of crisis, after the crisis is over, the government yields some of its power back, but it's still at a higher level than it otherwise would have been. This is not a problem if you want the central state to run everything. This is a perfect, uh, which many bureaucrats do want, and that's uh, that's the e- economic theories of, of public choice is that bureaucrats and public agencies want to maintain their power. But for those of us who are concerned about the rise of large government It's very worrying, and we want them to yield up their power after it's over. Grace, how do you think through these issues in terms of when crises are over, when when normalcy returns, and what that should look like? One of the crises that I researched for this project was the coronavirus crisis. And we had a very clear goal at the beginning of it, which was to not overflow our healthcare system. And apparently the way to do that was to lock down for two weeks so that the hospitals would have enough beds and we wouldn't have a massive spike in patients flooding the hospitals. That was the goal, and we did that, so we accomplished our goal. And supposedly then the crisis should have been over. We could have dealt with it the rest of the way on the local level, on the state level, but the government continued their lockdown. Yeah, in the early days of the virus... One of the things that people were extremely worried about is you had you had extremely disconcerting footage in China of sort of mass hospitalizations. You had a, a system that was overwhelmed in Italy in many respects. We thankfully avoided that here in this country. But yeah, those goalposts have a tendency to shift and uh, it is important to be mindful of that. Um, there's always crises within crises that are sort of animating. You know, there's there's the winds of the storm. There's the precipitation, the flooding. All of these things may demand different responses from different levels. Individuals might, you know, board up their windows. Um, municipalities might get uh, crews out working on storm sewer drains, those sorts of things to make sure that water can expeditiously be cleared. Everybody has a part to play, and there, there, there is a there is a danger um, in that in that shifting. 
because in the shifting what might be an appropriate response from an institution on a higher level of authority might be completely appropriate for whatever the the initial crisis within the crisis was. But there are always other components of these things, other problems. And the federal government might, might not be the best way to deal with each and every issue within a crisis. Ben, ben what are your thoughts on this? Well, yeah, Dan, uh, I'd like to add that the, the wording of that um, fourth criteria was very specific, uh, very intentional. Um, and it's that any suspension of liberty must be reinstated when the crisis is over. And now we recognize uh, that there are going to be times uh, when crises reveal vulnerabilities in the system. Uh, and there's going to be times when, for example, I think of um, 9-11 and, and the creation of uh, the Department of Homeland Security. You know, that was never intended um, to be seated afterwards. That was never, uh, the Department of Homeland Security was never intended to be broken up after the, the crisis um, was over. Uh, but there are times when liberties are infringed upon. Uh, to take it back to the Civil War and the writ of habeas corpus, that was a, a right of the people uh, outlined in the Constitution that was infringed, that, that was um, taken away with reasons uh, that are legitimate. Um, but that also, uh, Lincoln and his successor, Andrew Johnson, uh, did cede those powers back to the people uh, those rights back to the people after the crisis was over. So that's sort of a model for what we're looking at. I'd like to end sort of talking about a man who was, who was shaped by the crises of, of his time, and this is Wilhelm Rupke. And uh, in an early um, recounting of sort of his early life, he talks about how he became an economist and he says, uh, to understand the reasons for the crisis, to learn what brought – and this is the crisis of the First World War – to learn what brought it to the stage of war and to find if war indeed resolved anything, I determined to become an economist and a sociologist. Like all who are young, much of my curiosity must have been for its own sake. But since from the first studies were directed toward the preservation of the thing I studied – a moral imperative lay behind them. What crises in your own lives sort of piqued your interest in this? We've talked a little bit about COVID-19. Is there anything else that you thought when you gathered together to discuss how to approach this topic? What were your own experiences that sort of motivated you to do that research? I'll take a stab at that one. Mm-hmm. Um, for me, it really was COVID-19. That is, that is the grand crisis um, of, of my lifetime. Um, I was born uh, just after um, the, the event of September 11, 2001. So I, I don't um, have the same kind of visceral emotional reaction to that as the people who witnessed it and watched it on the TVs. Um, but watching the COVID-19 crisis unfold, I, I do get to analyze the effects um, of government actions. Um, and, and that's really piqued my interest. Grace, similar experiences or, or any other different crises that, that you, that were in the back of your mind when you began this project? Uh, very much the same, although more to the effect of watching my college's response, which was mostly to follow the government's mandates to the letter even when somewhat contradictory. Okay. So you were seeing sort of a a botched administrative response 
to this. Jeremy, how about yourself? Well, of course, the, the COVID-19 pandemic did impact my life. Uh, I'll, I'll take you in a, in a little different direction there. I'm, I'm a self-professed nerd and a student of history. <laughs> uh, so I've been reading a lot over the past year about the New Deal. Um, I read Friedrich Hayek's A Road to Serfdom, which talks about the rise of state planning after World War II. That was in large part in the United States prompted by the rise of the New Deal and uh, Franklin Roosevelt's attempt to micromanage every economic minutia of the state. Uh, so it, it was reading that and saying, wow, uh, our country has not necessarily gotten worse in the path to freedom. It's possibly improved since then by a large measure because that was very close to uh, outright communism, if not socialism, during those critical few months and few years after Roosevelt was elected in 1933. Uh, so it was more the realization that uh, America has not necessarily regressed. We have not perhaps progressed as much as we thought we had as well. And uh, in order to avoid future crises, and for me, to understand how I should respond to crises in the future, how I should view the role of the government and the political system to manage them. Should it be to always turn to them for assistance and help? Uh, should I run to them every time there's a large-scale crisis? Or should I look to other people, to myself, to my city, to my state? So um, exploring these four criteria, the PERT test, uh, has really helped me to have a much better understanding of what to do when the next crisis hits because we know that the next crisis will possibly sooner rather than later. Yeah. One of the other things, we've talked about morality. We've talked about responsible government. We've talked about sort of an economic analysis of power. We haven't really talked about a sort of spiritual dimension to this. Where is the place of God in crisis? Charles Malick in his book has a very provocative line in which he talks about how at the deepest levels, the crisis is caused by Jesus Christ in a half dozen different senses of the term cause. <laughs> and he sort of teases that very provocative nugget out throughout his book. And God is always present in these crises. And what I'm wanting to discuss is not necessarily a, a sort of theodicity of an explanation of why bad things happen to good people, but that when crises happen in this large sort of sense, and then sort of the personal crises that everybody has, which are often entangled with these larger crises. Um, you have a lot of people that who have had throughout the COVID-19 pandemic to figure out different educational situations for their children, to find uh, different um, accommodations for elderly parents who have, you know, throughout all of these struggles, where should God be in that, Grace? The coronavirus crisis has revealed priorities, and it's revealed the priorities of the nation and of individuals. You've seen in various states... Churches have been shut down while some secular organizations have been permitted to continue as normal. And you've seen on the individual level, a lot of people have just given up attending church, going to their religious services in the name of safety or maybe now in the name of laziness. But it certainly revealed where the heart of the American people is and where the heart should be. And it should certainly be in God. That should be the first place we turn to in any sort of crisis. I agree. Uh, and when you look at it on, on an individual level, what should our personal response be to crisis? 
um, speaking as Christians. It should be to look to God for faith and hope, obviously. I think of James 1, 2, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. Uh, and this is on an individual level. You know, the COVID-19 crisis should hopefully have produced in us all a greater understanding of our reliance upon God, even for non-Christians, an understanding of the frailty of the human spirit and the human body, for sure. Uh, any pandemic will do this. Any war will do this even more so. Uh, but then you have to wonder, what is the government doing? Are they inhibiting this production of steadfastness in their citizens? Are they making the citizens instead reliant upon the government instead of reliant upon God? Uh, or are they potentially encouraging this steadfastness and this looking to something higher than themselves uh, in the crisis. And I don't have all the answers for how the government can do that, but I, I know that it is necessary for them at least not to discourage this from happening. Absolutely. Ben, any thoughts on this? Yeah. The only thing I'd like to add is that I think it's a hard line to walk. Um, as being a Christian, you have to analyze what's the proper role for government uh, and what should be properly um, recognized as, as God's territory. What I mean by that is that I, there are there is a role for government, uh, and you know we see that biblically. But we also need to recognize that all that is truly good um, flows from the same source, and that is God. So, speaking of the common good, that can only be found uh, in a relationship with God and in a community um, that that favors their relationship with God. Lord Acton once wrote. Um there is a wide divergence, an irreconcilable disagreement between the political notions of the modern world and that which is essentially the system of the Catholic Church. It manifests itself particularly in the contradictory views of liberty and of the functions of the civil power. The Catholic notion, defining liberty not as the power of doing what we like, but the right of being able to do what we ought, denies that the general interests could supersede individual rights. It condemns, therefore, the theory of the ancient as well as the modern state. We've been talking about that balance, that balance between liberty and the common good and their interdependence even in times of crisis. And in crisis, there is a temptation and there is an opportunity as we talked about with the ratchet effect for government to seize power. But there's also an opportunity for us to turn to God and to reevaluate ourselves and our roles and responsibility in the world. And that's the encouraging thing. That's the consolation that comes out of these many challenges. Well, thank you, Dan. Yeah, uh, before we go, we'd love to hear your opinion um, uh, of our criteria and whether you think um, it's accurate, whether you think there's anything that should be added or taken away. One of the things I am, I am extremely reluctant to do a sort of hard and fast rules. And part of this is because I believe that politics is an art and not a science. And that part of what statesmanship is, is credential acts situated in time and place. Now, what I really like about this framework is it gives us a set of things to keep in mind as we go through a crisis. It doesn't say this should happen for this set amount of time at this set of, you know, funding, but it gives us all things that are very important to maintaining the common good, such as the rule of law and the terms of the Constitution, 
part, such as subsidiarity, which is a principle that is rooted in Catholic social teaching and one that um, applies not only in crises but through the regular functioning of government. And it's it's something that it's something that we shouldn't just throw out if 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 things get dicey. Um, that local knowledge, in fact can be very important to addressing local circumstances, to communicating information, and uh, to offer a whole batch of different solutions and approaches that can then inform other governments to best meet the needs of their communities. I think we, we have to keep in the forefront of our mind that the common good and liberty are not at odds. They may be in a particular instance, such as, you know, we talked about the suspension of habeas corpus. But in principle, those two things, liberty is a constituent part of the common good. And we always need to keep both of those things in mind. We often, one of the, one of the criticisms that I've made of, of, you know, there are many folks on the right who would put the common good and liberty at odds and say we need to reject this liberty and we need to embrace the common good. And I think that's a profoundly – that's a profound misunderstanding of what the common good is. Um, so I think, I think that's, that's a very important guideline. When the crisis is over is a difficult it's, – it's it's something that we need to be thinking about, and I think as as I was I was speaking with Grace, and I was talking about these crises within a crisis, and you see that very much with the COVID nineteen pandemic. We had something very different in mind when we were doing government the initial government responses. We've had something different um, now with the introduction of vaccinations, and we're having something different in the future after that that's sort of taking shape now. Um, there are some places that, you know, there are basically no restrictions. There are other places, uh, Los Angeles County recently, that reintroduced restrictions that they had abandoned previously. So we're all trying to negotiate that. And I think uh, knowing what victory looks like in any crisis um, – I mean, we just pulled out of uh, Afghanistan, and there's a lot of debate about whether that's the right thing to do. Um, there is not a lot of work going into what victory looks like, and I think that's been something that has plagued that operation from the very beginning is there was no clearly articulated end to this mission. And I think that makes it not only you have these concerns about government power, but it also makes it more difficult to conceptualize what a solution to the problem looks like if you don't have that at the beginning. Um, So I think it's a very helpful framework for thinking through this. I think it gives you – a set of sort of analytical frameworks to think through these issues. And I think people could take your case very seriously and maybe come out uh, with different answers to a particular question. But I think that that's something that speaks, uh, speaks well of it, that serious people of good faith 
who might even have a difference of opinion on a particular issue could still find this framework helpful and could still find this framework um, could make them cognizant of all of these sort of overlapping concerns um, and keep them in the forefront of their minds. So, no, I, re- I really enjoyed it. Thank you so much, Dan. Thank you, Dan. As always, thank you for listening. Our team loves putting this podcast together for you. It's encouraging to hear from our listeners. Feedback is incredibly important to us because it lets us know what you like to hear more of, including the kinds of topics you're interested in most. If you have comments, feedback, or ideas for a show topic or interesting guest, you can email our team at actonline at actin.org. Until next week, for Actonline, I'm Gabriel Zhajan.